Good, well good morning everybody and can I add my warm welcome to that already given by Augustine and can I just mention uh, these little tracts, there are only three of them left there but I've got more at home which I'll put out next week. These are very, very good gospel tracts and I would like us as a church to get into the habit of uh, sharing uh, little tracts with people who don't know the Lord Jesus. Um, It's a wonderful thing to do and the way I'd like us to do it is to actually familiarise ourselves with it and then share it, read it uh, with someone that the Lord has laid on your heart, ideally then bring them to church. What I want you to do is if you've taken one, and I know some of you have already, um, when you've done that and you've given this tract to another person, come along and tell me and I'll give you another one. So that's how it works and it's called Just Grace. Good, well do please keep your Bibles open at Joshua chapter 10 and uh, I'm going to ask the Lord to help us as we we look at this passage together. Well, our loving Heavenly Father, um, we are very much like the disciples in the storm on the lake. Uh, We are perplexed by many difficulties, many temptations, Uh, much sickness, bereavement, financial challenge, all kinds of difficulties. So the storm is raging and Lord, we need the Lord Jesus to stand up in the boat and say peace be still to the storms in our lives. And we pray that as we look at this passage this morning that you would do that for each one of us individually and personally. And we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Denise Underhill was amazed this week when she saw her dead mother watering the garden. Uh, The article in the newspaper said that Denise had recently moved from the United Kingdom to Florida in the United States. And uh, one morning as she was doing her housework, she was overcome with this impulse to pick up the phone and call her mother. Instantly she realised she couldn't do that because her mother had died 18 months ago at the end of 2015. So she decided instead to look for her mother's house on Google Earth and uh, within a few minutes uh, she found it and she zoomed in and as she zoomed in she almost fell off her chair because there was her mother watering the garden. Now what actually happened there? That's the question that we need to be asking as we look at Joshua chapter 10 this morning. What actually happened on this unique day in world history? Uh, And when we've thought about that, we're going to need to ask another question, which is, what does it mean for us this morning? Now, in our series, we've already seen a number of amazing things that God did in order to get his people into the promised land. But by any standards, this is the most amazing thing of all. And of course, over the years, the focus has been mainly on verse 13, Can we all see verse 13 in our Bibles? The second half of verse 13 says this, 
the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. Now many critics look at that and they say, well there you are. Uh, The Bible is a book that confuses myth with history. I mean, it's obviously impossible that anything like verse 13 could ever happen. So all this talk about the Bible being truthful and infallible, well, it's obviously false. Now this morning, what I want to do is to take that as a test case of the kind of attitude that many people have towards the Bible. You might even have that attitude yourself. And I'm asking this, how do you react in that situation? When somebody makes a comment like that, what do you say? Uh, And I want us to see this morning that there are three important stages that we need to work through in order to be able to give a clear and sensible answer. And the first is what does the text actually say? You see, when a friend or a family member challenges us on the truthfulness of the Bible, I don't know what your experience is, but mine is that they are not mildly curious. They're usually hostile. And faced with their hostility, I think it's very easy for us to panic and give them a short and rather feeble answer. Now instead, what we need to do is to take time to understand what the Bible actually is saying and, just as important, what it is not saying. And that involves putting the text in its historical context. Now here in Joshua chapter 10, uh, you'll notice the first five verses tell us about the alliance that the Amorite kings formed against Israel. Uh, So would you look with me at the map that's uh, on your table that you were given this morning. Um, If you take up the map, you can see uh, there how under God's direction, Joshua led his people into the land just north of the Dead Sea. At first, they miraculously crossed the River Jordan, which was the the natural barrier stopping them going into the land. Then secondly, they take the fortress town of Jericho. Then thirdly, they move up north to Ai, and at the second attempt, under God's direction, Ai is taken. And then they move south to Gibeon, which falls to Israel because the people effectively surrender without a fight, as we saw last week. And now, in chapter 10, Israel are poised on the central highlands in the centre of the country, ready to go west through the fertile plain of Shephelah and eventually down to the Mediterranean Sea. Now, there's a great deal of the country still to occupy. They've still got to clear up the towns in the north and the towns in the south, and the rest of the book of Joshua deals with that. 
But here in chapter 10, they're poised at a critical stage in the conquest. And that's why Adonai Zedek uh, rallied the Amorite kings and he used Gibeon as a test. Can you see verse 2? Verse 2 tells us that he and his people were very much alarmed because Gibeon was such an important city. And if that city fell, and if the men there who were good fighters felt that they needed to ask for terms from the Israelites, well, what would become of Jerusalem and the other Amorite townships? So these kings, they get together and they decide to test the strength of the alliance between Gibeon and Joshua by attacking the city. So, verse 6, the Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. And then in verse 9, we're told that Joshua marches the entire army of Israel up from the camp at Gilgal. Um, It's an all-night march which covers the 20 miles between Gilgal and Gibeon. And they arrive in time to launch a surprise attack at dawn and they win a tremendous victory over their enemies. But if we read verses 11 to 14 carefully, it's very clear that the battle was decided not so much by the action of the Israelite troops on the ground, but rather by divine intervention from heaven. So to give just one example, at the end of verse 11, we're told that the Lord hurled large hailstones down on their enemies from the sky. And more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. So can you see that the text is very definitely saying that the battle was won by a direct intervention by God. God won the battle and God gave the victory to his people. That is what the text is actually saying, and that's stage one. But in stage two, we need to go on from there and ask, well, what other explanations are being suggested for this extraordinary event? Now, there are lots of them. We haven't got time to cover them all this morning. I will briefly mention three. The first explanation is that some people look at verses 12 and 13 and they say, well, you know, this is poetry. So, verse 13, the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies as it is written in the book of Jashar. Now, unfortunately, the uh, book of Jashar is lost to us and no copies have ever been found. But the experts say that it was probably a collection of national songs or poems celebrating Israel's heroes. And in those days when uh, people wrote poems or songs about their military victories, 
they did sometimes make reference to the stars and the planets being on their side. So to give you just one example, you don't need to turn to it, but in Judges chapter 5, Deborah and Barak claim that the stars fought on their behalf against their enemy Sisera. That's uh, Judges 5 verse 20. And so some people say, we've got something like that going on here. And according to that explanation, when Joshua saw the enemy escaping, he, he called on God for strength. And God answered his prayer by refreshing Joshua's soldiers so much that they were able to do kind of a whole day's fighting in less than half the time. So it was as if the day had been lengthened. Now that's an ingenious idea, but the problem is the text doesn't actually say that. At the last part of verse 13 is not set as poetry in our Bibles, it is narrative, and it says quite clearly, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. So, I think the poetry explanation doesn't wash. The second explanation is the position taken by much of modern science, which dismisses a text like Joshua 10.13 as pure fiction. Now, this is probably the most common objection, um, so we need to spend just a little bit longer thinking about it. John Lennox uh, is Professor of Mathematics at the University of Oxford. He's also an absolutely brilliant Christian apologist. He's uh, engaged the atheist Richard Dawkins in public debate on more than one occasion, and he's come out firmly on top every time. And I think anybody who can squash Richard Dawkins, they must be extremely able and brilliant. And John Lennox warns us that when we're talking about the Bible and science in the same sentence, there are two extremes we must avoid. The first is taking a text like Joshua chapter 10 verse 13 and trying to offer an explanation that fits perfectly with science. Now that's dangerous because either we're going to adapt scripture to make it fit with science, or we'll be selective in our use of science in order to support scripture. But the second extreme we need to avoid is to ignore science altogether. Uh, so this is the person who says, uh, the Bible says it, so I believe it no matter what evidence you might produce. Now that sounds terribly spiritual um, and of course we, we admire the instinct to trust God's word and to defend it against all challenges. But we do have to do a little bit better than that as Christians if we're not going to bring the Bible and the gospel into disrepute. And I say that because even a giant like Martin Luther made a mistake about this. And his mistake concerned the chapter that we're looking at this morning, Joshua 10. Uh, the background here is that a man called Copernicus 
had uh, just discovered that the Earth and the other planets in our solar system orbit the Sun. He was absolutely right about that, but the problem was it was the opposite of what people believed at the time. And writing about Copernicus, Martin Luther said this, I quote, The fool wants to turn the whole art of astronomy upside down. As Holy Scripture tells us, Joshua bid the sun to stand still and not the earth. End quote. But of course, science has proved that Luther was wrong and Copernicus was absolutely right. And that reminds us, doesn't it, that it's very easy for Bible-believing people to kind of get forced into a wooden literalism which in the end is sometimes shown to be foolish by scientific discovery. So, whenever we meet objections from science against what the Bible appears to be saying, we first need to find out what assumptions their objections are based on and we need to deal with those. And scientists, <coughs> excuse me, who are not Christians, they will usually look at a passage like Joshua 10 and they will say, well, the key to history is today. We don't, <coughs> we don't see things like this happening today, so it can't have happened then. And that just proves you can't trust the Bible. But then when you go on from there and you ask them to explain the assumptions behind their argument, they will usually say one of two things. Either they will say, well look, actually to be honest, I'm an atheist and I don't believe in God anyway. Or more likely, I think this is the more common position, they will say, yes I do believe in a God who created the world. But he made it and he wound it up rather like a watchmaker might make a watch and leave it to wind down. And God has left the world to run itself and now he never intervenes in it. In fact, he couldn't intervene because it would be against his character to do so. Now the problem is, both of those assumptions cannot be proved. You cannot prove that there is no God and you cannot prove that God made the world and then just left us to get on with it. So the argument that dismisses Joshua 10 is usually based on assumptions that can't be proved and haven't been proved. So can I say at this point, let us not be put off by people who look at a text like this and say, well, you know, this has never happened in our experience, therefore it couldn't happen. Because that is just as silly as saying, I've never seen Australia, therefore Australia doesn't exist. Rather, what we need to do, pay attention to this, what we need to do is we need to gently point out that the Old Testament is all about God intervening in human history regularly 
and decisively. Just think about this with me for a moment. The book of Joshua is only the sixth book in the Bible. So we're still at a very early stage in the whole Bible story. And yet, even at this point, there have already been several massive divine interventions. Perhaps the greatest was the flood, which led to a new human society based on totally new principles. The second great intervention in the Bible is the Tower of Babel, where God responds to the arrogance of man by confusing language and scattering the nations. The third great intervention is the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God turns a fertile plain into a wasteland. The fourth is the Exodus, where God brings his people out of Egypt by parting the waters of the Red Sea. The fifth is the (coughs) the thundering and the earthquake at Mount Sinai, when God gives his people the law. Now you see, friends, these were all supernatural interventions by God in human history. And in Joshua chapter 10, at a crucial moment in the campaign to take the land, there is another divine intervention, a supernatural intervention that delivers God's people from their enemies. And I want to say to you this morning that if the word of God has any meaning at all, it does teach us that in God's infinite wisdom, he intervenes in any way he chooses at any time. There are no laws of nature that are above God. He is able to override the way that the universe normally works whenever he chooses in order to fulfil his purposes. So with that in mind, let me mention one third third explanation. Because some astronomers have suggested that in 1404 BC, the planet Mars passed within 70,000 miles of Earth. That's actually, in astronomical terms, quite close. In fact, so close, they say, that it nudged the Earth off its normal axis. And uh, that, they say, could have caused a significant adjustment in the hours of day and night. And if you want to read up on that further... Uh, you can download a book from Amazon called The Long Day of Joshua and Six Other Catastrophes. Uh, I'm told it's a fascinating read. I haven't read it myself, but uh, you might want to look it up. The Long Day of Joshua and Six Other Catastrophes. Now, I find that explanation quite attractive. I don't know whether it's right or not, but it's attractive because the year 1404 BC fits perfectly with the timing of the conquest of the land. So maybe there is actually an astronomical explanation for this extraordinary event. But what I want us to realise this morning 
is that if that is right, then the miracle is even greater. Because, you see, it shows us, doesn't it, God governing his universe, arranging the orbits of the planets in such a way that at just the right time, God was able to deliver his people from their enemies. Now, there are a number of other uh, explanations that you can research for yourself, and quite honestly, um, I don't know which one of them is right. I can't tell you for sure how God did this. At the end of the day, uh, I'm not sure it really matters. Because the important thing is that as Christians, we know that our God does intervene in the world. Uh, After all, that's what Christmas and Easter are all about. And the Bible is saying that Joshua 10 is historical fact. It was an awesome reality in which God caused an event of cosmic proportions to win a great victory for his people. And so with that in mind, we need to ask thirdly, what are we to learn from this event? Well, I want to suggest three things that we can take away for our own discipleship as we seek to follow our amazing God. First, this passage reminds us forcefully of the sovereignty of God in every situation. He is in total control of the world that he's made. What we are pleased to call laws of nature are actually God's gift to us because he wants us to live in a world of security. So it's not a world that God has has created and then left. It's a world in which God is intimately involved. And he's in control of all the circumstances that his people have to face. Uh, If you uh, look again at the text, you'll notice this comes out several times uh, in the passage. Look with me, for example, at verse verse 8. Verse 8. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Now that is an explicit claim that our God rules in the affairs of men. You see, I expect that the Amorite kings thought they were completely free agents. When they went up to attack Gibeon, they probably thought that they were carrying out the best possible plan uh, in order to squash the Israelites and that they were in control. But they didn't see the reality. They didn't realise that in fact they were under the hand of the sovereign God and that there was a much stronger hand than theirs at work in that situation. I have given them into your hand. Now this lesson about the sovereignty of God in all circumstances comes out again and again in the passage. 
If you like to underline things in your Bible, take up your pen now. Look, for example, at verse 10. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. Verse 11. As they fled before Israel, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them. Verse 12. The Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel. And verse 14 and the, uh, the marvellous sentence right at the end of the verse, surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Can you see that God was in control of the whole thing? And you see, my dear friends, this is teaching us that God is in control of every situation. He is sovereign, absolutely sovereign. One interesting piece of evidence of this in the passage uh, is in verse 11, uh, where the huge hailstones, notice this, were directed on the enemy, but not on the Israelites. Even though the Israelites were on the same road, At the same time, God is in control of the whole event. Now, this is a lesson that you and I need to learn in our own lives. That when you and I face situations of danger or difficulty or confusion or complexity, God's back is never turned away from us. We need to learn that nothing can happen to us because God's having a day off or that this disaster just slipped in when God wasn't looking. His control of our situations is absolute. And therefore the Christian knows that nothing happens apart from the will of God who works all things together for good and that our seemingly impossible and often frustrating circumstances are not beyond his control. It's a reality that all of us, including me, can so easily forget in the heat of the moment. But it's one of the great foundation facts of the Christian faith. And of course we see it most clearly, don't we, in the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and we will see it again when he returns on the last day to wind up human history. And it means, you see, that if you're a Christian this morning, you can have absolute confidence that your little life is in his hand, that he knows what he's doing, that he understands the circumstances. Why? Because he brought the circumstances about and he's going to use them to bring glory to himself and to bring the ultimate good and blessing that he's always planned for you into your life. So friends, can we pledge, can we pledge to encourage one another to hold on to the sovereignty of God in every situation. Then secondly, 
We're to learn the importance of prayer in every situation. Verse 12 says clearly, doesn't it, that Joshua asked God for a miracle. Verse 12 says, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon, O moon, over the valley of Ijalon. And uh, verse 14 underlines, doesn't it, that what happened was an answer to Joshua's prayer. Because it says, there has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man. Now pause on that. Obviously that does not mean that there's never been a day when the Lord listened to a man before or since. It doesn't mean that because the Lord is listening to people all the time. But it means that up to the time that the book of Joshua was written, there has never been anything like Joshua 10, where God answered prayer in such a cosmic way because a man prayed on behalf of his people. Now, brothers and sisters, can I urge us to exercise a bit of common sense in applying this to our own lives? Quite clearly, God gave Joshua particular liberty to pray about this particular event. So can I say to you that uh, if you have an assignment that's due to be handed in at college tomorrow morning and you haven't even started it, please will you not pray verse 12 and expect God to give you an extra long day to hand it in. God is not a supernatural slot machine. Now Joshua would never have prayed a prayer like this if he hadn't been really well instructed in God's purposes for his people. But when we do know what God's purposes are, and when we know the promises that God has made, then we should appeal to him for his purposes to be fulfilled with exactly the same confidence that Joshua prays here. So, for example, there's a place, isn't there, in the New Testament where the uh, Apostle Paul is in a particularly tough spot. And God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Now that means, in whatever you might be facing this morning, that you can pray that with the same confidence that Joshua does here. Lord, make your grace sufficient for me in this situation. You see, I say that because it's not our job to dream up promises that we wish that God had made and then pray those and expect him to do it because he's not going to. Our job is to search the scriptures and see what God has committed himself to in his eternal word. And on the basis of his eternal word, we can claim his promises with boundless confidence because God is committed to doing everything that he's promised. So, think about this a bit more deeply with me. Verse 14 
is not designed to discourage us because that situation was unique and it's not our situation. No, it's meant to encourage us by showing us the extremes to which God is prepared to go in answering his people's prayer when we pray according to his will. When we pray according to his will, God will direct his supernatural power to fight for his people, however strong the opposition might be, and however extraordinary the event might need to be to bring about his promise. Now that's why, you see, it's really important that we learn to pray in every situation because there are always unseen factors that you and I are totally unaware of. So let's never, never judge our circumstances by what we can see. Rather, let's pledge, pledge number two, let's pledge to encourage one another to pray more and leave it with God. Prayer meeting on Wednesday, 7 o'clock, our house. Lastly, we're to learn not only to trust God's sovereignty in every situation and the importance of prayer in every situation, but thirdly, that God's priority is the destruction of evil in every situation. Now, we didn't have time to read verses 16 to 28 this morning, but in that section of chapter 10, we're told how the five Amorite kings fled to a cave where they were captured and then humiliated. Uh, Look with me, if you will, at verse 24. Verse 24. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Verse 25, Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. So these kings, they were captured, they were humiliated, And verse 26 tells us they were executed. Now you might say to yourself, well hang on a moment, was that really necessary? I mean, isn't Joshua being just a little bit vindictive here? Is that really what God is like? And the answer from scripture is that that is what God is like where evil is concerned. Do you remember that the Bible tells us that um, the conquest happened when the sin of the Amorites had reached its full measure? So you see, as God's people move into the land, nothing evil must be allowed to remain in the pathway of a holy God. There must be a ruthless rooting out and destruction of everything that stands in opposition to the rule of God. Now think about this. 
This is not giving you and I license to launch a crusade or to start a holy war against the enemies of the cross. We are meant to apply this to our own lives and to our sin and the evil within us. We are to be ruthless about our sin in every situation. You see, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it, to know that the blood of Jesus has cleansed us, that there there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if we're Christians, we do need to ask ourselves, is there some evil lurking in a cave somewhere in my life? I mean, it might have been confessed. It may be forgiven. But have I allowed it to live on? Because if I have, well, there may come a day when it will, as it were, rush out and pull me down. Plenty of Christians will tell you that's true. Yes, Jesus has crushed the serpent's head, but we must be just as ruthless with our own sin. Because if God shakes the planets from their normal orbit in order to preserve his people... If God allowed his son to die an agonising death for sin, how can we tolerate sin in our lives? I mean, think about it. God was prepared to shake the heavens and the earth so that the land might be purged of evil and his people kept pure. Now the good news, the good news for us is that whatever the lurking enemy might be in the cave in your life or in mine, where that sin is confessed and cleansed, verse 25 is a wonderful promise for us. Look at it again. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. All the besetting sins, all the powerful temptations, all the fiery darts of the evil one. He will do that if we trust him. God did it for Israel because he wanted that land for Bethlehem and for Calvary. And he's done an even greater work than that long day in the day of his grace. And he's done it through the death of his son. God has made it possible for us to trample on the enemy of sin and evil in our own lives as we claim the victory that he won When the same sun hid itself in darkness as Jesus died on the cross.
God wants us to trust his sovereignty in every situation. He wants us to pray for his power in every situation. And he wants us to live in his victory over evil and sin in every situation. That is the message for us from the day that the sun stood still. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we, we ask that you would write these things on our minds and on our hearts. Our understanding is limited, but your word is infinite. Our interpretation is partial, but your inspiration is perfect. So, Lord, please grant that we may have renewed confidence in every detail of your truth and that we might show that confidence not simply by defending the Bible but by lives shaped by the Bible as we trust you as we pray to you and as we experience you as the God who continues to intervene on behalf of his people to glorify his Son who has visited our world to deliver us from sin so that we might live forever in fellowship with you. O Lord, hear our prayer in Jesus' name.